0: This is WGRE 91.5 FM, Greencastle, Indiana. Good evening and welcome to Music for Life, music from DePaul. In this episode, we hear from two more students about their summer doings, this time working with young musicians. Two more new faculty members drop by to introduce themselves, singer Thomas King and music theorist Jenny Smith. Hannah talks to Carrie Jennings and Amanda Hobson about their upcoming Schubert recital. And we have a lively chat with members of our first Green Guest Artist of the Year, the Boston-based and Grammy-nominated Chamber Ensemble, A Far Cry, whom I fuss at for being conductorless. There are lots of exciting things going on in the DePaul School of Music, and we're glad you could join us for Music for Life. Continuing our stories of what I did with my summer vacation, joining me now are two more students, Salvador Rodriguez and Alan Whitehead. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hi. This is a change of pace for you because the two of you are switching from being the teachers back to being the students, right? Yeah. So what were you up to, Alan? Uh, This summer,
1: um, the first half of my summer, I was teaching beginning sixth grade band. Wow.
0: In the Uh, summer school program.
1: Yeah, that was quite the adventure. And where was that? Elkhart Memorial High School. Like all the incoming sixth graders... Ah, go there in, on cool. that side of town.
0: So you started, and then where did you go after that?
1: And then after that was completed, I had about a week off, and then I um, started teaching high school marching band. I started at Fairfield High School. That's my second year. The director is actually a DePaul alum, oh, cool. Andrew Muth. Mm-hmm. So I started there, and then I also started my second year at Elkhart Memorial, which is my high school. Ah. I was doing marching band. I was teaching trumpet sections. I led full brass rehearsal a few times, visual tech, just a lot of different responsibilities that was assigned to me.
2: Now, Sal, what about you? For the beginning of my summer, I started off two weeks out in New Jersey, out at the Lee Stevens steven Summer Seminar. Ah. Seminar. Um, cool. That was a lot of fun. That That's lot... neat. How'd you get into yeah, that? Thanks to Dr. Whiting. She oh. wrote me a letter of recommendation and I had to go through an application process, but Josiah Rushing, who is a DePaul alum as well, who's now at CCM, he recommended it to me and I thought it was a great idea, and so I ended up there. That's very cool. Yep, and so it was two intensive weeks of summer study, and we were all living in a house, all 20 of us together. We all had marimbas in our rooms. <laughs> it was very intimate. We all we all got together to like play duos and solo stuff, and then go to the beach. We were only like a few steps away from the Jersey Shore, so it was a lot of fun. That's cool. Um, Lee Hart-Stevens himself, he's hilarious. He's really engaging. He's a really talented man, so it was very nice. And he also brought many guest artists like... Michael Burritt from Eastman and wow. Ivan Trevino, um, Escape Ten, who are two awesome women percussionists, Annie Stevens and Andrew Evany, who are also Eastman grads, I believe. Cool. Um, but all in all, it was, it was a fun two weeks. So out you got there. two weeks as a student, and then you became the teacher, and then I became the teacher. So and what were you doing there? I taught at two high schools, one of which was my alma mater, Joliet Central High School in Joliet, Illinois. There, I taught mainly just the drum line and the percussionists, and I also took individual students because. There are many fundings there, so I was offering my time and helping them out. And so that was a lot of fun. Also, another school down the road, like 15 minutes in Morris, Illinois, Morris Community High School, where I taught the front ensemble and the drumline, mainly the front ensemble. There was a bigger program, about 20 kids. Also there, I did offer my time individually to students because it was nice. Well, and that's cool. Because you were nice. yeah, yeah Because of course. I was nice. Sounds nice. <laughs>
0: So, Alan, was it is it intimidating to go from student to teacher?
1: Considering this was my second year, I guess. I mean, not not as much this year, but definitely last year when I started, when I went to the teacher role really for the first time mm-hmm. in front of kids that were literally less than a year older than or younger than me. Right. Um, I was. Yeah. It was. It's a pretty daunting task, um, just because. Especially when I was at my alma mater, like those, those kids are my peers. Yeah, right. So that's really difficult to establish yourself in a leadership position. Mm-hmm. But I think as time went on and I got more experience this year, I could definitely fulfill my leadership role right. and not really have to worry about being terrified about being in front of the group <laughs> or
2: anything. How about you, Sal? It was the same thing. I'm at alma mater, actually. The section leader that was left there, because they don't, and again, they can't afford percussion staff or any kind mm-hmm. of staff. So it's just one band director in the band. The section leader there, I've kept in touch with him. I've actually given him lessons whenever I go home for the breaks. And so he was like the glue Ah, between me as a leader and the rest of the students. Most of the time, they knew what I was there for, and they knew that I was there to help them. And so they took advantage of that. So is it hard to come back and be a student now? Sort of, kind of. Part of my Bonner Scholar program, I'm actually working out at Center Grove High School Mm -hmm. with a percussion program. So I live like a double life right now. Actually, on the weekends and some weekdays, I'm out there teaching, and then I come back to schoolwork, and so it's it's something that I'm sort of getting used to now. That's cool. Alan? <clears throat> um, I kind of have the opposite of Sal.
1: I mean, I'm not really... I mean, I'm still involved with the programs that I'm, I'm teaching at, and I will like, be going on the weekends to see them and teach with them as we get later on the year and as I get more settled here again. But I have my private students here through the preparatory program. That's cool. So
0: I have three of them. That's great. So, you know, what you guys have discovered is that the best teachers are always students. Yep. Yeah, and definitely. So you keep that going and success is sure to come your way. Sounds like you guys had a great summer, but we want you back, so (laughs) this building is way too quiet in the summer. So come fill it up. Great to have you back, and thanks for coming in to chat about it. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Hello, music lovers. Welcome to the events calendar for the week of September 14th. On Monday the 14th, there will be a faculty select series concert featuring Carrie Jennings and Amanda Hopson and that's going to be at 7.30 in Thompson. On Tuesday the 15th at 7.30, there will be another Faculty Select Series concert and this one will feature Steve Snyder on organ, David Stryker on guitar, and Jason Tymon on drums and that's going to be at Music in the Square at 7.30. On Wednesday, September 16th, there will be another Faculty Select Series concert, and this one will be Eric Edberg on cello and May Pong on piano, and that's going to be at 7.30 in Thompson. Friday at 5.30, Palooza will be back again for another year. So get outside at the Green Center and go support all the different student ensembles. On Saturday the 16th at six o'clock, there will be another Communiversity at Music on the Square. And also on Saturday the 16th at 7.30, Kristen Summer Danes will be giving her junior recital in Thompson. And on Sunday, September 20th at 3 o'clock, there will be an orchestra concert in Kresge, and the DePaul Orchestra will be performing works by Shostakovich and Mozart. So make sure you get to Kresge at 3 o'clock on Sunday. This has been the events calendar for the week of September 14th. Thank you very much and have a great week.
0: We're thrilled to have Thomas King joining us this semester to teach German diction and solo vocal literature. And it's my pleasure to welcome him to the show. Welcome to Music for Life. Thank you so much, Dean. So tell us a bit about your past. You have a really amazing story. I've got some amazing stories, but (laughs) I've been
4: alive for 70 years, so there should be something in
0: there interesting. And for those who, this is a radio show and not a television show, you can't see that he looks like he's about 45, so this is quite a feat he's got going on here. (laughs) Uh, I was born in St. Louis
4: two days after the Second World War was over, Wow! <laughs> just so you know. Uh, my mother was my music, and so I was always singing and playing piano and a little bit of violin and this and that and the other. So I've enjoyed my music all these years, although I was a math major in college I to start. I didn't know that. Two years in math, and then I realized, where am I then going? And you came to your senses. I did. <laughs> I did, and made less money. But I'm here in music ever since. So. Right. So. And had a
0: distinguished career.
4: Well, I certainly enjoyed it, and I hope that others would say distinguished. <laughs> uh, I sang in Germany for five years. But I've been singing recitals and operas in the States and Germany for about 40 years altogether. So. Wow. Well, it's great to have you here at DePaul. So tell me about the classes you're teaching. German diction for singers is for young people who want to have accent fry without an American accent mm-hmm. version of any of the German pieces they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so we work on the specifics, umlauts and CHs and Rs are usually difficulties for Americans, and so we're trying to fix those. Right. German's really challenging. Is it the most
0: challenging for our singers?
4: I don't know. French, when they look at the letters, the spellings Mm -hmm. are just horrible. (laughs) But German can be. It can be difficult because they think there's a bunch of guttural (laughs) stuff going on, and it isn't really true. Right. And so what about the literature course? Oh, the literature course. We start from the year 1600 with early Italian songs... And they're beautiful, beautiful, easy to sing. And the kids are, are enjoying getting to know those from a historical perspective rather than just singing them. So how's the acclamation been? Is everything going well for you here at the Paw? Oh, I'm happy. I'm very happy. I see smiley faces. I've interviewed two freshmen just on the street. How's your first day going? And they just <laughs> smile at me like, oh, I'm having a great time.
0: <laughs> so it's very nice. And all the faculty... Thank you. Yeah, we're just thrilled to have you here. It's been our pleasure to have you join. The students are thrilled you're here and lots of great things happening. So thanks for coming in to chat about Thank it. Thank you.
5: This is Rachel Malfitano here to talk to you a little bit about DePaul Palooza, which is coming up this Friday at 5.30 on the steps of the Green Center for the Performing Arts. Today I'm going to be talking with Matt Skiba, Sarah Jelka. And Levi Hoffman about what to expect at DePaul Palooza. So, welcome, guys. Hello. 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 All right, let's start off here with Matt.
6: So, for DePaul Palooza, I'll
1: be in the university band and the jazz ensemble. We're kind of going to surprise everybody with what we're doing. Uh, We'll have a few previews for our upcoming concerts, um, some of the pieces we'll be doing at those. And a couple of the charts will probably only be played at DePaul Palooza just for a little bit of fun.
5: That sounds great. What about you, Sarah? Hi, so um, I'm playing violin in the DePauw Orchestra, and you can expect some movie soundtracks, some Star Wars, Jurassic Park, and we're going to blow your mind with a version of Uptown Funk, so you have to come see it. All right. Levi, what about you?
7: Well, I'll be part of the Chamber Singers, and we're going to be doing a piece. Uh, but that's a surprise. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Oh, I but see. I have been told that the university course is going to be doing a South African piece, similar to the one they did last year. So
5: Yes, we will. I will be in that as well. We've got some nice dance moves for you and traditional African music. All right, guys, so what do we think is fun about DePaul and why should everybody come out and listen?
7: Well, it's a new
1: type of venue. Instead of actually coming into the Green Center and sitting in Kresgear Thompson, kind of being in that really formal concert setting, we're outside, we're having a lot of fun, Past years, we've had some bad weather, but like last year was a beautiful day for it. It wasn't too hot. There was a nice breeze, and it was just fun music to listen to.
5: You should definitely come out, um, listen to us. There's free food, which is always a huge draw, and have a picnic with your friends that are in the music school and your friends that are not in the music school. Just do some nice picnicking together.
7: I remember last year really enjoying uh, listening to the live music outside, and also there was a group of guys who just got together and started throwing a frisbee around, and it was a great, lighthearted environment. Very different than the one you get when you come into a Kresge stage and you just sit down. You're actually interactive and you move around a lot. It's a really fun
2: environment.
5: I think those are all great points and an excellent reason why all of you listening should be at DePaul this weekend. DePaul will be happening this Friday out on the steps of the Green Center for the Performing Arts. And there will be free food for all that want to come out and listen to some great music. Thanks, you guys, so much for coming in. You are welcome. Hope to see everyone there.
0: From our Faculty Select Series Concert of September tenth, 2015, saxophonist Paul Bro, cellist Kurt Fowler, and pianist Martha Krasnikan perform David Maslanka's piece, Out of This World.
7: I'm John Corigliano, and you're listening to Music for Life. As we
0: introduce new faculty members for the year, I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Jenny Smith into the studio, who has joined us on our music theory faculty. Welcome. Thank you. So tell us a bit about yourself. Tell our listeners where you're from.
8: Well, I'm originally from Ohio, uh, but I did my undergraduate work uh, up at Anderson, Mm -hmm. and I'm coming most recently from Massachusetts.
0: From Massachusetts. Beautiful place. I was just there a few weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely beautiful place. So what were you doing in Massachusetts?
8: Uh, I was teaching at the University of Massachusetts Amherst.
0: In a theory position there, correct? Mm -hmm. And how long had you been there?
8: Just one year.
0: Mm -hmm. And what will you be teaching for us here?
8: Here I will be teaching theory and musicianship. I'll be teaching both sophomore and freshman musicianship, or oral skills, and sophomore theory.
0: Our theory musicianship sequence has changed a bit, but... It's also, as it is at any school, the foundation of what every musician here in the music school does. And you've been at it for almost, I guess, a little over two weeks now, right? (laughs) Right. So how's it going?
8: It's going pretty well. I think we've developed a good rapport. We've started working on a lot of the core skills, and we're moving forward well.
0: And what other interests do you have? Tell us a little bit about your dissertation and the type of work you've done prior to DePaul.
8: Well, for my research, I have been looking at the music of J.S. Bach, uh, specifically his vocal music, a couple of his motets, which are uh, sacred Mm -hmm. multi-movement works. And I am mostly interested in the narrative or the story that he's creating across the multiple movements and what he does musically with motives or musical ideas that he takes from one movement and sort of intertwines them into movements after that to create this story.
0: Mm. And any great epiphanies in this process?
8: Just that I found so many things from the chorale movement or the, the hymn-like movement mm-hmm. that he uses all over the place <laughs> in all of the other movements.
0: And you wonder you know, how he was able to do this considering his unbelievably prolific output.
8: I know, right? Well, we can think about how much he composed and then he took and he repurposed mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. Uh, other pieces. And so at least one of the motets, it's likely that he has, you know, taken other things that he did and, and repurposed it.
0: And we like to think of J.S. Bach as the ultimate 21st century musician because he was this guy who did everything that was necessary to be successful in the musical world. And he was very entrepreneurial in his own right.
8: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So we're glad that you've joined us here at the DePaul. Hope things are going well for you, and we look forward to great things. Thanks for coming in to chat about it.
3: Thank you. This is student producer Hannah Gothier, and with me in the studio today, I have Professor Carrie Jennings and Professor Amanda Hobson. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. So, we're here to talk about your upcoming performance of Schubert's Die Schöne Müllerin. Great. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, So, this is a large work. It's over an hour long?
9: It is indeed. It's a song cycle of 20 songs. It actually comes from a larger work by the poet Wilhelm Müller from uh, the early 1800s, and Schubert set 20 of 25 poems. There's a prologue, an epilogue, and three additional poems that Schubert did not set to music. Dr. Hobson and I are, of course, doing the cycle in its entirety, but we will also be joined by Dr. Inga Aures from Modern Languages, mm-hmm. who will read those poems that uh, Schubert did not set to music.
3: Is that a common thing to have another person read the poems that aren't set, or is that your own idea?
9: I've never seen it. In fact, it was uh, Dr. Hobson's suggestion that oh. we do it that and I,
10: I had done that with someone before. I kind of liked it. I thought it added something also gives the singer a bit of a rest in a couple of places it's
9: much needed when the music <laughs> itself is over an hour long
10: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it is sort of problematic i mean did you say you've seen people take a little break in the middle because it's quite a hefty i have piece of work
9: yeah there. i've seen people take an intermission i think after number 11 mm-hmm. um, after mine which um itself is a difficult thing just that one piece
3: We'll just take a break anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, uh, Dr. Hobson, the piano in this cycle isn't so much accompaniment as it is a duet. How is that for you?
10: I think it's great. I mean, I try to hide, probably don't hide the fact that I hate generally playing Italian music because it's all about the voice and the piano parts are so boring and you have to come up with something to make a repeated arpeggio Mm -hmm. work you know whereas this gives you so much material it's just wonderful you know it sets up the sound of the brook it has the hunting horn you know of the hunter that the miller lad comes to hate because he wins the girl you know so all those kinds of things are in there for you and lots of opportunities for you know tone painting and different colorations so it's a lot of fun that's awesome
9: yeah I wasn't joking even when I announced in our student recital hour that people could just come hear Dr. Hobson play it. Uh, It's not (laughs) just accompaniment, and she does such a wonderful job with all of the voices of the cycle. I pretty much am just the voice of the young Miller lad, except in a piece later on where I do become the voice of the Mm brook, but she's
10: everybody.
3: Do you each have a particular... Setting that you like the best to sing or to play? Oh, you mean one
10: of the songs yeah, of the piece? Right. Oh, actually, I'm, it kind of varies, but there are two I particularly like. I never can come up with the titles when I want to, but the Liebesfarbe. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, there's this repeated F sharp that goes through the whole piece, which to me is like his obsession with this color green. That's turned, you know, it was something wonderful. He gave her this green ribbon, but now green is the hunter, and he hates it, you know, and mm-hmm. and so this. This, the mind, he can't get off of this idea. So that F sharp is really amazing. Yeah,
9: I agree. I mean, I think it's one of the best uh, songs in the entire cycle. I guess we're fortunate that we tend to like a lot of the same things <laughs> and so Dr. Hobson and I work really well together. But yeah, it's haunting that repeated F sharp in that. And and Pausa would be, I think, another mm-hmm. one of mm-hmm. my favorite ones, uh, which is number 12. There's a set in there of four or five that are, are strophic and have four mm-hmm. verses and it's our job to make them interesting enough uh, when it's the same music over and over but if people can get through those strophic ones, they're really in for a treat starting from number 12 through 20. Well, that's
10: true. <laughs> Although we've talked about uh, number 10, it has three verses that are the same oh, right. and then the last little verselet, which is a little shorter, it switches into the minor and that one actually I, I like very much too. There's some really interesting voice leading in that one and it's when he's sitting with her you know, looking at the sky and looking <laughs> in her eyes and then at the end she gets up and says, oh it's starting to rain, Good night." <laughs> you know? And then he's like,
3: oh. Yeah, you know, yeah. just sort of
10: left there. So that one, I like the little tweak at the end. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, that's fantastic. So, Dr. Jennings, what about you? What do you like so much about number 12?
9: Well, I guess it's about uh, him putting the lute upon the wall, um, and uh, it's strung there with a ribbon that uh, is from her. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting from that, but frankly, I just like singing it. I think that it, <laughs> it, it's, it's a beautiful melody. The piano part is really quite beautiful. And the last page of that song in particular is, um, sits in my voice in such a way that uh, it's an an easy kind of thing to get into um, the different dynamics that are on that page from the forte to the piano different settings of the exact same music and then the amazingly haunting chord that uh, is played underneath it but I I just kind of like singing that one frankly
10: I I think it's gorgeous and I I think that one too is the first hint that he's oh wait this is not going well there, you know there. and so you know and so you get that kind of back and forth from lovely major chords and then it'll turn and it'll be minor i'll go to a different key for a moment then it'll come back and then oh well that ooh, you know it's just a little unsettling so it has a nice mood to it yeah, as well for sure
3: well this sounds like it's going to be quite an interesting concert and one more time that is september the 14th a monday at 7 30 in thompson yes All right, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dr. Hobson. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Jennings. Thank you. And everyone, hope to see you there.
0: Joining us on Music for Life, we've invited into the studio what New Yorker music critic Alex Ross has called the most imagination-grabbing, trailblazing artists of 2014. A far cry amidst the shifting cultural landscape of the 21st century emerging musicians have reimagined nearly every aspect of how, where, and for whom they perform. They've joined a growing list of prestigious artist ensembles embracing the philosophical and logistical position to lead from within, guiding their own artistic vision and administrative decision-making. Please join me in welcoming to the studio three members of the Far Cry, which are called Criers, Jesse Irons, Alex Fortes, and Megumi Stowes-Lewis.
11: Welcome. Thanks. Good to have you guys here.
6: Great to be here.
0: I hate to start this off in an antagonistic way, but I happen to be a conductor, and so you guys have let the cat out of the bag that were completely unnecessary.
7: I would actually uh, quibble with your your interpretation. <laughs> Having played in the Far Cry for 8 years, I have a deep appreciation for conductors. <laughs> and in fact, at the beginning, we referred to ourselves as unconducted. We tried non-conducted, and nothing really felt quite right. We eventually settled on self-conducted. Ah, So I think that's actually a healthier way to look at it. We have more conductors than any other orchestra (laughs) that I know of. Uh, We have 18, actually. Uh, That's great. And yeah, uh, believe me, we love conductors. They provide a focal point. They provide a uh, unified direction with very little extra work that Mm -hmm. needs to happen when you have 18 of them.
6: Right. I don't think you're going to find a group that has as deep an appreciation for conductors as one that often plays without one, because we understand what we have to do in order to make something that's compelling without a conductor. I think the advantage that we have, and why we do it, is that even though it's more difficult, it also means that the entire group is bought in because there isn't a hierarchy. Every Mm -hmm. single member has the ability to be the executive, at least some of the time, in terms of musical decision making and that's the advantage that you get when you don't have someone on a podium doing that all the time
0: and yet all of you also play in other ensembles and then you do have conductors so Megami, do you find that hard i mean do you think oh now that guy's up there let's start ignoring him i get back to a far cry where we do it right i mean how, how's that work for you
11: well it's different every time so i think we appreciate a great conductor who really helps bring things together and i think we try to play in groups where there's a compelling artistic presentation, however it's achieved. Mm -hmm. So I think it just made me appreciate more the different ways you can achieve it. And I think when I am playing in a group with a conductor, I appreciate a lot of the efficiency Mm -hmm. that comes from that. And the fact that you can get a group of people together and have a great show in Mm -hmm. a fewer number of days. Mm -hmm. And I think we chose our model not because we thought it's the only way to get something awesome, but it just seemed to work the best for us and our personal desires. Mm -hmm. And we never said we would never have a conductor. We just feel like for... You haven't found the reason yet. Well, we had our first project actually with a conductor, Ah. which was a new opera Ah. where the composer was conducting. And that was a big deal for us to decide if we would take it on or not. Mm. Before we said yes, we loved his music and he Skyped into a full group meeting and we talked about what's your philosophy, how collaborative can we be? So I think we just look at the music and we say, what would make this the most exciting for us? And we hope that translates to what's most exciting for our audience.
0: Yeah, your performances are all so captivating and dynamic. And I think part of it is that it takes a a little while to get used to the fact that there is no conductor. There's also no chair, so that helps too. Yeah. There's a lot of things that you guys have decided to let go of. But I'm really struck by this because of the efficiency question. Bernstein said the conductor gets paid to win the arguments. Since there is none and no one's getting paid to win the arguments, then they can go on for quite some time. I mean, it seems like it would be a
7: challenge to your efficiency. Is it? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when we first started, we had anywhere from 12 to 14 rehearsals before a concert. And I would guess we spent seventy-five to ninety percent of the actual clock time of those rehearsals talking, right, and discussing and fighting. And as a conductor,
0: especially you know, you're, when you're conducting in a union setting, you're, oh man, I, you know, I need to fix this. That'll take sixteen minutes. Sixteen minutes to fix that yeah. Tr- translated by hours of clock time. You know, I, I can't afford that. I'd like to fix this attack, but I'm not going to.
7: Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the luxuries of being young and poor and without (laughs) jobs is that it's okay. We can rehearse 12 times and get our $50 honorarium. (laughs) We're no worse off than if we hadn't have done that, but it was really valuable learning time for us Mm -hmm. to, well, among other things, start to figure out, how to do this in fewer rehearsals. Right.
0: To develop an efficiency so that you get the positive of that while still maintaining the positive of the group dynamic that's going on. Yeah. yeah,
11: and we kind of honed a system that keeps evolving. But one of our early installments was to have a person who was not a principal, so not in charge of running the rehearsal, but outside of that, who was the spanker. And <laughs> they, we were like, we're talking too much. When we reach a certain point, The spanker yells, spank, and then we have to start playing something.
0: Ah, cool. Um, I love that.
11: And so now the spanker... They should do that
0: with conductors. (laughs) (laughs) Conductors had spankers. (laughs) Probably most orchestral musicians would be happier.
11: Right. And so now the spanker only shows up occasionally. Ah. Um, But we also added something we call a spoke for every piece. So of the team of principals. One principal is the spoke. And that's a rotating job that everyone takes on. But they facilitate coming to that final decision.
0: So does it change the joy in the music-making process when, you know, I would think it would be a pro and a con. On the one hand, there's not some dictate. you know, the Toscanini god tells me how the music should go and you get in the way. There's not that. But then there's also, so there's a freedom of, I wonder how this should go. But then there's also the response, oh, no, he doesn't think it should go this way, and she thinks it does, and boy, here we go again.
6: Well, it's a bit of both, because... Like all collaborative ventures, there's a lot of negotiation involved, and, and we do disagree on how things should go. But I think the difference is that sometimes, not always, but there are certain orchestral settings, or especially when you get towards the back of the section, you have a bunch of people kind of... Talking to each other, being like,
12: this guy doesn't know how this goes at all. Like, you know,
6: I mean it obviously should get faster here, not slower. And and I think our system allows for at least that to be voiced. And and that happens sometimes. It's like, no, well, I think that this marking means that we should accelerate to this tempo or, or that it should be a very shocking sound, not mm. not a smooth one, or, or and things like that. And someone else will say, Well, I really don't see it that way. And what we've created is a rotating hierarchy that allows decisions to be made eventually. And so sometimes if you don't get your way, you also know, well, on the next piece, I'm going to be in that role. And so I will be able to contribute more that Mm. time.
0: So do works stay in your repertory over seasons and time?
11: They do. They do.
0: And then do they change? And how would they change? Absolutely. That wow. is one of the biggest uh,
7: <laughs> ways that, as Alex mentioned, uh, for someone who is feeling artistically disenfranchised, because <laughs> when, the it, current, comes back, when I'm it comes putting back, that I'm in. leading that piece. Yeah, right, right. yeah, one of the biggest myths about a Far Cry is that we're musical democracy. We're totally not. We're a <laughs> republic, we're representative republic. <laughs> I, I like to say a rotating benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> <laughs> So the truth has been exposed. OK, I just had to get that out and figure
0: <laughs> it out. So thanks for that. Now, you guys have cooperated and, and collaborated with the who's who of 21st century musicians, including a lot of folks that are very near and dear to us here at DePaul, Yo-Yo Ma. And you also worked with Caroline Shaw and Roomful of Teeth. So tell me about that process. That now you've, you've got a complicated process, because there's no ultimate person in charge. And now we bring in yet someone else to complicate. How's that go? Positive
6: experiences? Always, pretty much.
11: Yeah, and it changes, you know, if it's a single soloist like Yo-Yo, then he's playing a concerto. We want to help, you know, realize his vision. So before he came in, we practiced different tempi for the concerto, and we're like, Yo-Yo, what do you want? He's like, oh, I don't know. What do you want? Let me hear you play. (laughs) (laughs) He was amazing, so open. You know, when we collaborate with a group, like room full of teeth they have their own group dynamic and Mm -hmm. it's really awesome to see that and there's always this kind of first feeling where you're kind of sensing what is their dynamic like how do we interact Mm -hmm. um we have a spoke for every piece so the spoke kind of coordinated with caroline as she was writing the piece for our two groups but it always changes i think We tend to be on our best behavior in collaborations, (laughs) which helps. So I think we're at our most open, and we kind of try to learn as much as we can from them.
0: And I love that magical moment when the two worlds collide. I told the story on this show many years ago about the Civic Orchestra of Chicago and Yo-Yo being here, and Yo-Yo was late. And so they began rehearsing, and Yo-Yo was working his way there. And they were all at the front of the stage, and Yo-Yo walked into the back of the hall. No one saw him come in pulled the peg all the way out and standing, began to play along. He wasn't playing the the soloist role, he was just playing along. And immediately the sound of the orchestra changed. Now nobody saw him, it was from behind, but they heard him and they knew what happened. And there was this immediate reaction and adjustment. And I imagine that happens every time you bring a guest into the room. Definitely.
6: I also think, specifically with Caroline, it was a special collaboration because she is both a vocalist, and a great violinist. Mm -hmm. Many of us have actually played chamber music with her Mm -hmm. before her whole Pulitzer Prize thing, and that process was really special and easy.
7: It's something we specifically look for when we're trying to suss out who to work with. Right. We look at reputations of soloists and ensembles, and Yeah. and, uh, yeah, we always aim for people just like Caroline. Right, and yeah, Gary.
0: Caroline's fantastic, and she's yeah. on the 21 Team advisory board. She's here after she wins the Pulitzer, and no pretense, just as easy to get along with as ever. And one of the great things about our opportunities here at the Par, not only do we bring great musicians, but we bring great people to campus, and that's certainly the case here with the Far Cry. So you guys also took an interesting turn in that you abandoned traditional record companies and you started your own, A Cryer Records. And then self release this album that actually gets nominated for a Grammy and goes up against all the big dogs of the world. And uh, it just seems like, from the outside looking in, that this really is a fearless attitude on your part, that we're just going to come in here and we're going to get this thing done.
11: Well, I think it came from a desire to do something differently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had released several albums with various labels, but we have such a strong vision for our program. So Mm -hmm. say, Dreams and Prayers, and we wanted to kind of see the process through all the way from not just choosing the music, but collaborating with how the record would sound, what the graphic design process would be, um, how we could get it into avenues where people could listen to it. So I think it wasn't so much, you know, let's take on the world, but it was like we have to do it a certain way. We have such a strong feeling and idea for this. To fulfill our vision. That we just have to do it ourselves. And, of course, it was a lot more work than mm-hmm. I thought it would be, <laughs> like most things are. So I was like, yeah, of course we can start our own record label. No problem. <laughs> like I have to do is, you know, get distribution, you know, like do awesome marketing. Um, anyway, so it was a lot of work, but we had amazing support from Kickstarter backers, mm-hmm. which was really mm-hmm. cool. And it was one of a handful of Kickstarter-backed projects that were Grammy-nominated that wow. same year. And it was awesome. I think
7: it was like six or seven, yeah. like a shocking number of Grammy-nominated yeah, projects and, you know, coming out of Kickstarter. Yeah.
11: In these
0: days, it's not surprising that someone starts their own record company, but it is surprising when someone starts their own record company and gets a Grammy nod. You know, that's that's pretty amazing.
11: And I think one thing that applies in every area of a Far Cry, we do have amazing help and advice and, Mm -hmm. you know, from the faculty, you know, we talked to, who connected us with people to consult with all along the way. I feel like because there are so many of us, we Mm -hmm. have, you know, connections to ask people about how to do things and the best ways to do that.
0: You know, you are such shining examples of 21st century musicianship in so many ways. I mean, not just the great musicians that you are and the great musicianship you bring to the stage, but the way that you program it, the way that you organize it, the way that you manage your own tours, present your own recordings. I mean, it's really absolutely remarkable. So I want to end our segment here with a a bit of music. And I'd like one of you to tell me just a little bit about this piece from The the Dreams and Prayers of Isaac the Blind. And we're talking about the tenoramente. So
6: tell us a little bit about what we're about to hear. The whole idea behind Dreams and Prayers when we talked to Oswaldo is that it's setting these Kabbalic texts and so on. But each movement is in a different Jewish language. One is in Aramaic. Mm-hmm. one is in Yiddish, and then this third movement is in Hebrew. And I think it's very much about speaking to all of the different roots of a, a people that has had a millennia-long diaspora. And mm-hmm. It's just a really cool
7: piece. It sure is. Yeah, <laughs> it's a a, it just
6: builds and builds,
7: and this movement, I'm glad you're going to play it, because listening back to this recording afterwards, um, and our, our brilliant producer Jesse Lewis deserves uh, mentioned, he really pulled out of A Far Cry... Just an incredibly raw, and emotional performance that would have been, you know, very much at home on any concert stage, mm-hmm. and to manage to do that in a, you know, cold stone Recorded church stages, right. without an audience, yeah. uh, so I'm I'm very proud of this recording, and I hope you enjoy listening to it.
0: Well, thank you for bringing this great piece and all of your great music to us, and for being such shining examples for us all. It's been great to have you here. Thank you Thanks very much. Mark. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Music for Life. We love hearing from listeners. You can contact us by emailing musicforlife at depaw.edu. We're also on Facebook at DePaw Music for Life. And you can subscribe to our show on iTunes by searching there for DePaw Music for Life. Our student producers are Hannah Gauthier, Burke Stanton, Rachel Amalfitano, and Matt Skiba. Veronica Pedrel is our online editor, and our show is produced by Matthew Champagne in the Judson and Joyce Green Center for the Performing Arts at DePaul University in Greencastle, Indiana. I'm Mark McCoy, Dean of the School of Music. Thank you for listening to our show. Keep music in your life, and have a great week. music for life.